6. Verses 1 and 3. Stanzas 1 and 3. 106. Tell me the story of Jesus. famous pastor named Jonathan Edwards and uh, this man that wrote this hymn is was also the chaplain who served under George Washington during the war for independence and he also wrote 33 hymns um, if I have my information correct he's also the president of Yale at one point back when Yale was uh, and its purpose was to train preachers. Timothy Dwight wrote, I love thy kingdom, Lord. 
And so when you're singing this song, you're singing a good old American hymn by a man who loved the Word of God and loved souls. He was also the leader of revival that took place, a part of the Great Awakening, I think. Hmm. And so it's, uh, it's nice to know some of the history behind our song. 188, let's sing verses 1, 2, uh, and 4. 1, 2, and 4. <clears throat> changes by Sunday the temperature and it's nighttime all right second Peter chapter 1 second Peter chapter 1 I have been spending the last two correction three Wednesdays in the book of Psalms chapter 119 and that is leading my head to go to a lot of different things about the Bible so tonight is the Bible and life the Bible and life second Peter chapter 2 sorry chapter 1 2 Peter chapter 1. Begin at verse number 1. The Bible and life. Psalm 119 is a great chapter about the Bible. Many good verses about its virtues. And we see that in a New Testament writer, the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1, it says, and he begins this letter, this epistle, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and right away we get a real good devotion of thought because Peter, Simon Peter, Simon is his given name at birth, but then the Lord called him Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And he says in that chapter that he would build his church upon the rock. And of course the Lord is referring to himself. He calls Peter a little stone, a little pebble in a way. And he is the rock. We know he's the rock. Jesus Christ is the rock because of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it plainly says that that rock, capital R-O-C-K, is Christ. And so it would be kind of strange that the church of Jesus Christ is built upon a man, 
And so, yet tradition and the lack of regard for what the Bible says causes people uh, in history, especially the Roman Catholic Church, and because I mentioned uh, specifically by name the group of people that say that Peter is the head of the church, it doesn't mean that we Baptists have animosity toward Roman Catholics. It's not that at all. It's just that tradition, tradition and a disregard of what the Bible says causes people, no matter who they are, to build a theology or a doctrine upon something that's not true. And so Jesus Christ is the rock, 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And Peter called Simon, uh, the Lord called Simon Peter, Simon Peter, Peter, you're a little rock. And so little stone, so Jesus is the rock. And so I'll look at verse number one again. Simon Peter is servant and an apostle. Notice the order of what he describes himself to be. He says, I'm a servant. Then he says, I'm an apostle. The apostle is the title. That is what he is. And he was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ living with him at the very beginning and saw him at his resurrection after that. And he was there. And so he qualifies as an apostle, but he doesn't say he's an apostle first. He doesn't say that, look at me, I'm the great apostle Peter. He says, Simon Peter, a servant, a servant. What do you think stuck in Peter's mind after all of these years? Peter writes this in his older age, and he is about to be facing his Lord. And we shall see some of those verses in this chapter. But he writes this at his older age. And he says that he is, first of all, before he's an apostle, he says, I am a servant. What incident, what incident specifically do you think made a real good impression, a deep impression upon Peter for him to always think of himself as a servant? Now, of course, he witnessed, he watched, he saw, he experienced, he walked with, he did the things that the Lord did in a real big sense. But what one incident what one account would make you think that he got it, that being a follower of Christ is not a title, a position, but it's a matter of the heart where you serve. What do you think it was? Feed my sheep. That one was very important. What's another one? When the Lord washed the feet of the disciples. Yeah, when the Lord washed the feet of the disciples. And so in Matthew chapter, thir uh, John chapter 13, he washed the disciples' feet. And of course, it was a real demonstration of humility and a real demonstration of why the Lord came. As a matter of fact, turn to Matthew 20, Matthew 20, and verse number 28. Here's a good verse that the Lord said, and you can use, and Peter probably remembered this one, and I would say, guessing that he did, Matthew 20, 28. For sure, we should remember this verse, Matthew 20, 28. He's an apostle, but he first identifies himself as a servant. Uh, back up to verse number 25. Jesus called unto them, unto uh, him, and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. Greatness, authority is something that a man craves for, and he would sacrifice a lot of things to become great or to have authority. Now, the Lord says in verse 26, But it shall not so be, uh, be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Uh, so, what a good verse. The Gentile world, the unsaved world, they think greatness is power, authority, having the highest seat, the chief seat. But he says, it's not so in my thinking, in my kingdom. Be a minister. Be one who serves. Look at verse 27. And whosoever shall, uh, will be chief among you, let him be a servant. 
the way up is not trying to be up. The way up is to go down. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give. And we'll stop there. And to give. So Jesus, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of someone who is a servant washing the disciples' feet. And he says, I came not to be served. I came to serve. And then he continues in verse 20 to say, to give, give his life a ransom for many. Now come back to Second Peter. So when Peter identifies himself as a servant and then an apostle, he got it right. It finally sunk into him. It's not about power. It's not about the seat of authority. It's about being a servant. It's about honoring Christ by being a servant. It's about being Christ-like. And so even John's mother wanted her sons to have a prominent seat in the kingdom. And so I think that's all pretty common, I think, for a mother to want her sons to be honored if they're going to follow the Lord. But Peter himself said uh, that he is a servant. A good lesson, a good reminder for every Christian today in the local church to serve. And that is what greatness is, serving, being a servant. Positions and titles may be earned, and promotion comes not from the east or from the west, but from the Lord. And so promotions, when they come, the person who is promoted, he likely thinks, if he's a good Christian, he likely thinks, it is God who promoted me, and I'm going to serve him in this higher position. Now, I have a different platform, and I'm going to serve in a humble way, and uh, I will honor my God who promoted me in this new position. Um, I do like some of the athletes in the NFL and other places, maybe in NBA, maybe not so much as it is NFL, but uh, when they get a big contract, they sometimes they will buy their mom or their dad the parents a brand new house and that is to say i never forgot what mom and dad did for me growing up we were poor we were in poverty they took care of me they stuck by me they raised me as best as they could took me to church and so on and then now that he has gotten to the professional ranks got a big healthy contract he's going to pay back his mom and dad for their care for him for all those years now likely likely the man wanted to have a big contract and a good position in the pros so that he could do something like that he never forgot where he came from. That's kind of reminding me about Peter who says, I never forgot where I came from. I am an apostle. Yes, the position is, yes, but not, not too many people are apostles, just us. <laughs> but I am, first of all, before I am an apostle, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I'm going to serve just like the Lord came to serve. I saw him. I watched him. I was with him. And I remember when he washed our feet. Boy, did that make an impression upon me. Here is God kneeling down into a container of water with a towel, washing our feet and then drying our feet. Oh, I don't believe he did that, but he did that. So I am a servant. Look at the next thing in verse number one. Verse number one. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse two, I'll get back to verse one about precious faith in just a minute. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Now you have the emphasis of the word knowledge here. Knowledge comes up at least three times in this chapter. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, you have this thing called grace and peace. Through the knowledge of God, you have grace and peace. Look at verse number 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So through knowing the Lord, through the knowledge of God, verse one, verses two and three, 
you have that comes along with knowing God, grace and peace. Grace and peace. It comes along with knowing the Lord. Now, both are gifts. Both are gifts to mankind. Both are gifts by God. But both are the results of walking with God. Grace and peace. It is realized at salvation's moment. When you got saved, it was by God's grace you got saved. And then the peace. You have now peace with God. You have the peace of God. Before you were at war with God, but now you got saved instantly at salvation's point. You were given grace and peace. And then uh, it doesn't stop there, though. It continues. Grace and peace continues. It continues throughout your life as a Christian. It is multiplied. It is multiplied. Grace and peace is multiplied. And that's verse number two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. It happens throughout your lifetime. It doesn't just happen at the moment of salvation and then it's all gone. No more peace, no more grace. Oh no. Quite the contrary. When a person is saved, grace and peace over a period of time. There's more grace. There's more peace in his life and her life. More grace to endure. More grace to endure things that irritate. More grace to endure disappointment, sadness, many different kinds of things in life that we wish would not happen. And then you have more peace. These things happen as you mature as a Christian. More grace and more peace. It is, it is multiplied, meaning I take it to mean that it is continual. It is continual. It goes on, not just, it, can, it, it grows as you grow. It's kind of like being married for a long time. You have more grace and you have more peace if you're married for a long time. And um, that's just the way it works. That's, that's the blessing. More grace, less strife, more peace. It's all through Christ. And so he mentions grace and peace. It comes from the knowledge of God. Look at verse number two. Through grace and peace been multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. Now, knowing God, being exposed to the Bible, getting to know God, um, this is something that we would say as Christians, everyone should do. But is it true that some people in this world do not care to know God? Some people do not care to know something about God. The knowledge of God is not important to them. They rather have the knowledge of the stock market, the knowledge of trades, knowledge of a lot of things that are good. And don't make the mistake to think that because uh, knowledge is not from the Bible that is all evil. Example, the knowledge of technology, the knowledge of producing something, synthetics, fabrics, uh, plastics, things like that. Are they not beneficial to everyone? Except for Hawaii because we got rid of our plastic bags because it's supposed to be bad for the environment. Oh boy. But having a good education at, at college, universities, a lot of times it's good for us. So we ought to be careful not to be so ultra-critical about knowledge that's not from God. But we would say, as a principle, knowledge without God is detrimental. An uh, education without God is damnation in a spiritual way, but not in a practical way all the time. I'm glad someone invented tires that can last 50,000, 75,000 miles. I'm glad someone invented a lot of different things that we use today. And it would benefit from the inventions. Uh, I'm kind of worried about these EV cars that have um, uh, automatic driving, though. 
I think last week, maybe two or three days ago, there was a report at San Francisco, the Bay Bridge or Golden Gate, one of the bridges, eight car pileup because this electronic, this electric car was driving, it made a turn, it cut a lane, and then the brakes went on, and there's a pileup. Now, I can see technology getting to the place where you just, remember that old, and the light comes on in the house? Whenever that was, the 70s. Now you go, see your car, the door opens for you, sit in the car, and the door shuts. You don't have to clap your hands anymore, probably. And then you take off and you just say, uh, I'm gonna go to Costco, YPO. And then the car starts up and it just, you just sit back. And you just sit back, it takes you there, it goes to speed limit, and it's got a monitor to see where you're going. You see where you're going. You sit there, you can't even close your eyes to fall asleep while the car takes you there. I can see that maybe the designers and inventors and technical, technically smart people they have said, this is a great idea. Less, less, less accidents, less depending on human response. Everything's programmed, certain conditions means this is gonna happen. That's kind of scary. You, you can't get away with the hum, with, without the human element involved sometimes. Now they're talking about robots to call balls and strikes at baseball. One of these years is gonna happen. Umpires don't like it, they'll lose a job, but to prevent accidents, human errors, which means a championship is won or lost because of an umpire's call. They don't want that to happen. They want everything to be absolutely fair. Well, you can't have everything absolutely fair. It's impossible. Now, robotics to do surgeries, ooh. I think some procedures, maybe that's a good thing. Something minor like heart surgery. <laughs> Robots, that's pretty... <laughs> Pretty simple, I think. I don't know. I'm just kidding on that one. But uh, with uh, with knowledge, um, if it's not Christian, don't don't condemn it all the time because sometimes it's good stuff. Sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it's beneficial to all of us. But grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. When you know God, it's a blessing. And yet some people don't want to know Him because. Because they are, they are, I'll just say they are afraid that he might interfere with their lives. The knowledge of God we can see already produces two good things, grace and peace. We see that already. Well, that's just the beginning. But for some people, they don't want to know God. Is it because they believe God might get in the way of what they're doing? God might say, to them, no, that's wrong. Maybe they're afraid of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. So whatever the reasons are for people to not know and to have the knowledge of God, we would say as Christians and as Bible-believing people that they really should consider knowing God because of the blessings that comes along with knowing Him. And so through the knowledge of God, ignorance. Some people are unaware of Him because they're not exposed to Him and they would believe in him if they knew about him. Hence the need for missions and witnessing. And then you have some people that ignore him deliberately. They don't want to know him for those reasons. I, if you ask my opinion, and since you asked me, I would say it's probably the latter. They believe God is a pain in the neck. They are like parents with you on your date. They are like 
always looking over your shoulder. I am not going to have much fun if I got my dad looking over my shoulder. That kind of thing. Well, it is true there's right and there's wrong, but it is also true it's very short-sighted thinking that I don't want to know God because He might just make me very unhappy. He might turn me into a Puritan. He might turn me into a pilgrim. He might turn me worse away into a missionary. Why, he might make me read the Bible. He might make me, worst of all, go to church on Sunday. Oh, no. So there's a fear, I think, in the minds of people, unjustly, that they don't want to know God because he will just interfere with their lives. Another aspect of this is some people don't want to know God because it really will interfere with their sinful lifestyle. Some people just don't want to be bothered with the conscience or with someone telling them, hey, that's wrong. A lot of people in this world, they have a lot of things going for them. They have a lot of prosperity. With that comes a lot of pride. And in a way, because of their hard work or their cleverness or their ability to figure something out, know the, the system of some sort, they produce a lot and they earn a lot, they have a lot. And they feel good about that. And that part so far is not bad, but along with that comes a pride and ego saying it's all about me. And people who think it's all about me, they feel like I'll do anything that I want to do as long as it gratifies me. That just comes along with human nature. And so knowing God, why would I want to know God? What good is he going to do for me? Look at where I am. I got all of these things without God. I didn't pray for these things. I got it because I worked hard. My skill, my talent, my ability, my good looks, my charm. Well, what I need God for? So there's that part of it. And then they just don't think that he fits into their lifestyle. He doesn't fit to their lifestyle. Well, all of that's a part of the mindset and the way of thinking for unsaved man why they don't want to know God. But the knowledge of God brings good things. And this knowledge of God is not casual. It is not, oh, I bumped into God today. It's not, oh, I think this week I'm going to read my Bible. It's not that at all. Oh, I think this month I'm going to go to church. I haven't been to church yet, so I'm going to go this time. <coughs> yeah, nothing's going on my account. I'll go to church this time. Well, I'm not so busy. Nothing's going No tournament. I'm just going to go to church today because there's nothing going on. So I'll go, I'll go to church for uh, half an hour. And so, no, it's not casual like that, the knowledge of God. You, a person cannot really know God casually. Uh, he must make an effort to know God. He just cannot know God by saying, I'll go to Wikipedia. It's like, if you want to know about Winston Churchill, I'm going to type in Winston Churchill, Wikipedia comes up, read about him on one or two pages. And he said, I know everything about Winston Churchill now. Do you know there's a lot more about Winston Churchill than what you see in a little website? If you read one book about him, you might know something else about him that you didn't know before. But did you know that is just still casual? That might be a starting point about there's a lot more I want to know about him. Well, this book said this, but I, I want to know more about this. What If you read 10 biographies of Winston Churchill, you would know more about him than just reading a web page. Or if you read his autobiography, you'd know more about him than you would if you just saw something in a paragraph. So do you get the idea? The knowledge of God is not casual like that. It has to be a little bit more complicated, more deep, more involved, more committed than that. So... I hope you understand that point. The knowledge of God does not come to the casual 
or to the careless. It comes to the diligent, the determined, and the Christian who really wants to know God in a more intimate way. That doesn't come just by being in church once every two months. That doesn't come by looking at the Bible just because nothing's on TV or because you're offline or because there's no there's no connection. I'll just read my Bible now if there's no connection. Pathetic Christian you would be if that's how you think you're gonna know God. I'm telling you the truth. Alright? Knowledge of God, knowledge of God requires time in the Gospels, time in the New Testament, time in both testaments. It requires putting aside some things to spend time reading the Bible. It requires staying in church. It requires having a prayer life. It requires self-discipline to grow in the Word of God. Verse number two, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through, through, through the knowledge of God. If you want to be wise and smart and full of education and full of knowledge, you're going to have to learn about God and of Jesus Christ of Jesus our Lord. Now, in verse number three, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through, through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of God, you have grace and peace, but through the knowledge of God, you have a lot of other things. You have life. According, verse 3, as his divine power hath given unto us all things. Now, the all things is not everything. Like, you think of things like three-car garage with three cars or a six-car garage, a car for each day and not for Sabbath or whatever. You know, first day. But it, it doesn't mean you have all things in the sense of having all material things. He's not saying that. The context would be all things that are spiritual, all things that are good, all things that are God-approved. According as the divine power hath given unto us all things, all things that pertain unto life. I'm going to say a lot about that in just a minute. And God in this, through the knowledge of Him. So far, I'm emphasized the knowledge of God. It's an effort. It is a challenge. It requires self-discipline. It requires letting go of some things. You can pick up the Bible more often. It's requiring you to have a determination and a willingness and a want to, and a want to, to know God, to have a knowledge about Him. And that's one thing no man can do for somebody else. You you might you might tell someone everything is true. You need to learn about God more, and then you'll be you benefit this way. But a person might agree with you. A person, a Christian, might say, "Yeah, you're right. You're right. Right." Oh, thank you for telling me. Yeah, you're right. But if that Christian doesn't have a desire to know God, I'm going to tell you something that you already know. That person will not know God more because he doesn't really want to. For previous reasons that I stated, a lot of things are more important. A lot of things are occupy more of his time. A lot of things are more pleasurable to him than just sitting down and opening up the Bible. Compare that to watching the Pro Bowl, or Super Bowl, or some big event, some sporting event, some um, some entertainment, some singing, something, some big show. Uh, can you imagine how? Boring it would appear to just sit there and read your Bible compared to being with your friends cheering for the big game. That doesn't sound very exciting to sit home by yourself to read the Bible. So there is this going on in our heads and our minds and the value system that we have and the worldliness that we have been affected with 
we'd rather choose. One time a boy visited his grandmother in the country, also in the Midwest in the summer, and there was a state fair or carnival going through town. And then uh, the family went to that and had a good time. The ride, the cotton candy, you know, that very healthy stuff, cotton candy and games, throwing balls, knocking down milk, jugs and things. A lot of stuff like that going on. A lot of fun, a lot of fun for kids. And then uh, come Wednesday night, that was on a Saturday. Come Wednesday night, the fair is still on all week long. And then the grandma says, visiting grandma says, uh, does anyone want to go to church with me tonight? Uh, the setting is country, Midwestern. Traditionally, you go to church. And grandma, grandpa, that other generation, they're used to going to church, so it's a habit, it's a good habit. And the newer generations that come along after, they have other habits that they have adopted. And so, anybody come to meet to church on Wednesday? The, the parents, uh, her, her son or her daughter-in-law, uh, you know, we're tired, we just came from work half an hour ago, and uh, it's already 6.30, I mean, we can't get, we're hungry, you know, all these kind of things come up. Maybe it seems like it's legitimate, but there's probably something that they could do if they really wanted to go. They're only five minutes away. They don't want to go, uh, and you know, what can what can grandma say? And so she asked the little boy who went to the fair with her on, on Saturday. And she says, I'll call him Johnny. Everybody's called Johnny, my stories. Johnny or Jerry or Junior or um, Useless or <laughs> something. Johnny, you want to come to church with me? No, I don't want to come tonight. You don't want to come to church with me tonight, Johnny? Don't you want to learn about Jesus? No. I, I don't want to sit in church. Well, why not, Johnny? You know, Johnny said to Grandma, Grandma, if you've ever been to the circus or the fair, you never want to go to church again. The idea is that he had so much fun on Saturday compared to going to church. It's like that's so much more exciting than going to church. Going to church seems to be so boring to him, to the little boy. And that's how people think, unfortunately, that life's pleasures and life's fun is more exciting, more important than going to church. How can you get someone to change their thinking? Not sure how. Well, uh, in verse number, where am I? Verse number three, has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now, besides having grace and peace, there is more than grace and peace that comes along. Through his divine power, he has given us all things that pertain, that apply to life. So besides salvation, besides salvation, the glory, besides salvation, look at verse number one. The salvation part, besides obtaining salvation, like precious faith, verse one, I'll read verse one again. Son Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them, to them, others that he's writing to, his audience, to them that have obtained like precious faith. Now, Peter got saved, we would say, now he's writing to people who are not apostles. They're not apostles. He says, to them that have obtained like precious faith. So like I got saved, he says, you people I'm writing this letter to, you got saved by the same kind of faith. It's like precious faith. It's faith. And you have with faith, because you put your faith in Christ, you have right, the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So salvation is a part of knowing the Lord. It's a big part, starting point. It's the first step of a walk with God by knowing Him personally as your Savior. All things that pertain to life is first of all salvation. It's salvation, personal salvation. Now, it is also salvation for the Jew and the Gentile. Like precious faith means anyone who 
calls on Christ will be saved, Jew or Gentile, like precious faith. Same way, saved by faith. And then in verse number four, here's what he says about that like precious faith. In verse number four, come to the middle of that verse, that by these, that these precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? You become a partaker of the divine nature. You know what Kenneth Copeland would say? You see that? You are a God. You're a son of God in the literal sense. Jesus is the son of God and you are just like him in authority. Therefore, you can command things to happen and it's going to happen. And that's their perverted spin on what that verse is saying. Well, what is the right way of explaining this? You might be partakers of the divine nature. How is a sinful man, how is a fallen sinner able to become a partaker of the divine nature? There's an answer for this from the Bible. And it's the right answer compared to what people like Copeland says. You know how you become a partaker of the divine nature? Turn to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians, here is how a sinful, lost sinner with no ability to be righteous by his own good works, he must simply trust the finished work of Christ, put his faith in what the Lord says, and he will be saved. And when he is saved, look what happens. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is a good verse that people should know. This verse should be marked in your Bible. Verse 21 says, uh, begin at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, those who are saved. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you, as if the Lord himself was there telling you that. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation. At once, there was enmity, enmity, war, conflict, controversy, anger, hostility between two parties. One party is offended, the other party is the offender. Now look at verse number 21. For he hath made him. Now you have to understand, uh, identify the pronouns. For he, God, for he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Obviously that's us, the reader, the sinners. Who knew no sin. So he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. That uh, Let's see. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. When you put your faith in Christ, God gives you His righteousness through His Son. That's how you become a partaker of the divine nature. It's miraculous. It's the work of the Holy Ghost. And a person becomes born again. In God's eye, He is righteous as His Son is righteous because through Christ, through faith in Christ, the sinful man now becomes in the sight of God righteous because he has been imputed, he's been granted, he's been given the righteousness of God through Christ. That's how he has become a partaker of the divine uh, nature. So, now he says this. That's about salvation. That's about the things that come along when you know him. Besides grace and peace, you have now in verse 4, been given 
righteousness. Now look at verse 4 again. After the word nature, the divine nature, comma, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You have two things in verse 4. Number one, because of the knowledge of God, you know him as your Savior. You heard about it from a gospel preaching or a message or a literature or the Bible. And you got saved. Then you were given your partake of the divine nature. But that doesn't end it. It's just the beginning because he says, comma, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Now, ultimately, eventually, we shall escape the corruption of this world. It's called the rapture or it's called death. Either way, we will escape the corruption of this world. However, while we are alive, is it not possible for us to escape the corruption of this world? Is it not possible? Let me ask another way. After you got saved, did you lose your humanity? Did you lose your longing to be worldly? Did you lose your desires of things that you used to have before you got saved? Or were your desires erased, like you erased a board because you got saved? No, you still have that old nature in you, even though you are partaker of the divine nature. So you still have the ability and the, the longing for and the taste for the taste the taste for some things that you you don't you don't you don't like not because it's wrong. Uh, when I think about a taste for, I think about certain things I ate as a boy that I haven't eaten for a long time, and recently I began to eat some things that I never ate for a long time. Not good. In fact, I haven't eaten some things. This one particular food product for a long time. Bought at Costco though the other day. What at Costco? Never go to Costco when you're hungry. Because you're going to try to get this, get that. Everything looks so good to you. And I bought this thing. It's a case of something that I used to eat as a boy. I thought it was the greatest thing. And I haven't eaten it for years. You know, salt and everything else. Plus, people say it's not real food. But I did like it as a boy. I bought a case. And I ate. I cooked it. Ate it. And it tasted good. I almost felt guilty. But I fought off the guilt. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. The old taste was still there for it. But I had not eaten it for a long time because I chose to eat other things instead. Now, we still have that old taste for the things of this world. And yet, he says that we're able to escape the corruption that is in this world. That's pretty good news. You're able to escape the things that once grabbed the hold of you and pulled you down. Well, now look, we are able because of the connection, relationship we have with Christ by new birth, and because of the Bible, we have new life, but our nature is still with us. We still have temptations, and we, though, can escape the corruption in this world. Now, Acts 2.40 says this. Peter is preaching, save yourself from this untoward generation. The word save is not salvation save, but save yourself from being corrupted by this world, in other words. So it's possible for someone to be in a dirty place and not be dirty. It's very possible for someone to be in a dark place and still be able to see with his own light. It's very possible still to be around people who are not spiritual, and yet you still remain spiritual. And so we can escape the corruptness in this world. So we're in the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus said. We're here, but we're not of the people that are here. We're bumping shorts with people that are ungodly, but we don't have to become ungodly as well. That's what he's trying to tell us. We have something that helps us, first of all, to be saved, 
Now we have something that helps us to be free from corruption. It's protection. We have personal salvation. Now we have protection. We have protection. We have life now. We have life now. And this life now, Peter claims and says, it can be a life of godliness. A life of godliness. This is the life, verse 3. Pertain unto life and godliness. Do you know, I think you do, these verses about escaping the corrupt of this world and save yourself from this untoward generation, it's about the life of a Christian now before he goes to heaven. And the Bible says, Peter says here, Peter the servant and the apostle says, you and I have been given something from God that can help us to overcome the things that will pull us down. He's really saying there's no excuse. No matter how we say to ourselves, oh, I can't help it, whatever. He, he's really saying to us, we are very well able to overcome some things, not by our own strength, but because of what God has given to us. So we're in the world, but not of the world. Things that pertain to life, all things that pertain to life. Now, notice in verse number three, one more time. According as the divine promise, a power hath given unto us all things, given unto us all things <coughs> that pertain unto life and godliness. All we need for salvation is found in the Bible. All we need to live a life of godliness is found in the Bible. That's what he's saying. Now, do you know that when Borders were still around, I think there's a Borders of Alamoana. I went to Borders Award Warehouse one time, long time ago, and they had sales on certain days, so I was trying to find some good deals on books, and I looked around, and there was a medical section. And Carmen, I saw, I saw books. It was for nurses. One book was that thick. That's about three inches. That's only A to K. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. The rest of them was some all the way L to X, the Z. Two volumes for nurses. Two volumes of books about terminology, problems with the body, for nurses to know. And I thought, good, as I thumb through it, there's all kinds of words I never heard about. All kinds of things. A to Z, what could happen wrong with the body? It covered everything. Well, it seemed like it covered everything. Do you know that the Bible is a book that covers everything? It covers everything. Right. Listen to this list. Things that pertain to life. This, I'll give you A to Z, and I'll just skim right through it, fly it over. No verses to give to. Just to give you an idea that the Bible is like the nurse's handbook. It covers everything you could possibly imagine in a doctor's office, in a hospital, somewhere. Abortion, adultery, alcohol, anger, anxiety, beating, bitterness, backstabbing, business practice, child training, clothes, contentment, dating, death, death, depression, diet, discouragement. These issues are covered in God's book. Divorce, excuses, expectations, failures, favoritism, friendship, gossip, government, greed, grief, habits, homosexuality, hospitality, husbands, injustice, integrity. That's just a short list. Investment strategy, jewelry, justice, last days, laziness, loneliness, love, lust, lying, money, murder, music, parenting. Oh, by the way, when it comes to murder, the Bible says don't. Pride, prostitution, purity, racism, reconciliation, rejection, restitution, revenge, reward, self-esteem, singleness, stress, suicide, taxes, the future, vows, and work, and a lot more. Not in two volumes, but in two testaments. The Bible. All things that pertain to life. 
So when you got saved, you didn't lose your humanity, didn't lose, didn't lose your feelings. You still have them with you. And as a Christian, you deal with them and you can overcome them. You can have a life. You can have a navigation through these, these things that happen in life because you've got this thing that pertains to life. This is why, this is why we say with, with conviction and confidence that if you want to avoid trouble, do what the Bible says. If you want to get out of trouble, do what the Bible says. If you want to stay in trouble, ignore what the Bible says. All those three things are true. And so counsel from the scriptures is what people need. And verses 3 and 4, God's method of keeping us sane and safe in this world is through the word of God. It is so good. It is so well put together. It is so divine. Here's so much Peter says. The Bible is so necessary. It's even better than something he experienced. Look at this. In verse number 16. By the way, in verses 12 through 15, Peter talks about his soon death. And he's emphasizing the Bible as he's about to die. Verse number, let's look at verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. You know what he's saying when he said, I will not be negligent? It's like malpractice. A doctor cannot do practice that is against standard medical procedure. He could be sued for medical malpractice. Peter says here, that I'm not going to be a bad doctor to you. I'm not going to be guilty of medical, mal, spiritual malpractice. Verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, through though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Verse 13, yea, uh, yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, in his flesh, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Remember, remember, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. You know, one of our biggest problems is forgetting things. Forgetting things. Knowing that uh, shortly I must put off this tabernacle absent from the body, present with the Lord. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed us, moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease, after my death, to have these things always in remembrance. Remember what, Peter? Remember what, Peter? This is so important that when Peter is about to, Peter is saying, I am gone in just a little while. But before I leave you, I want to tell you one more thing, one more time. Look at verse 16. The clue, 16 down through 21. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 3, Matthew 17. When he was transfigured. Verse 18. And this voice which came down from, came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Watch carefully. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake, and they were moved by the... What is he saying? He's dying, but what is he saying as he's dying? The most important thing he wants you to know is that experience... Is not as important, is not as credible, is not as authoritative as the, 
the prophecy of scripture. So he's saying, don't forget, put the, I'm going to put your remembrance, the Bible is your most important source for life and godliness. It's not experiences. He had a first hand experience of seeing what he saw when the Lord was transfigured. And he said, though I saw that, though I, I'm telling you the truth, there's something more credible than me, a man telling you the truth, exactly what he saw. Not a hallucination, not a mirage. He actually saw what he saw, Peter says, but there's something more credible than what I'm telling you. And I don't lie because today's Sunday. And he says, it's the word of God. It is more believable and more truthful than anything that man can say. So he ends this first chapter by talking about how great the word of God is, that it is, that it is the book, that it is the great word of God. It is what you need for life and for godliness. And when a person is making time for that, he will be turned from godlessness to godliness. Amen. He will turn from being ungodly to godly. And why is that bad? That's not bad. And so that's how Peter ends. And that's why in Psalm 138, his words were esteemed over even his name. And in Psalm 119, verse 161, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. Why is he saying all that word? Because it covers everything that pertains unto life. And so you have the Bible, and it is to help you to become godly earth. And it pertains to everything to life. Now, it doesn't mean uh, the Bible's going to teach you about auto mechanics or about um, how to make plastics or how to do this or that. A lot of things are not covered in the Bible, but there are principles there that helps us to do things properly. How to power wash. It doesn't say that, but it does say uh, something in principle. So the things that pertain unto life is in principle or by direct statement. And that's how you know how to navigate through these things in a life. Okay? All right. We're going to stop. And I'm so hot up here. It's probably because of this shirt. I think I'll come next time with a tank top. No, I won't embarrass you. Thank you, Lord, for letting us have a Bible study tonight. We pray that you'd be a blessing to people that hear it. And I pray that you would help people to realize how blessed we are to have the Bible in our hands. And help us to make time for it. Help us, Lord, to digest it. Help us, Lord, to see that what we need is what people need. We need this book that pertains unto all things in our lives. And so, Lord, help us to believe that and help us to encourage people to make time for the Bible. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.